Well, this afternoon, I'd like to focus on the words of Lord's Day 23, and in connection with that, I'm going to be doing some readings from the first six chapters of Romans. I'm not going to read all the chapters. In fact, I'm going to do those readings in the sermon as we go through, so it'll be helpful if you have your Bibles open with you in front of you or your iPads or whatever the devices may be. Uh, For now, we're just going to read Lord's Day 23 together, and then our readings will come through as we go through the sermon. So if you have a songbook, turn to Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's one of our three confessional documents that we hold to as a church. Lord's Day 23, there's three question and answers. Primarily, we'd be focusing on question and answer 60. Let's read the whole thing in its entirety. Lord's Day 23. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? And all this that the Catechism is talking about is it's just gone through the Apostles' Creed. So what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ I am righteous before God and an heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Question answer 61. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. For only the satisfaction, the righteousness, the holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. So far from the confession as a summary of God's word. We just read together from Lord's Day 23, and Lord's Day 23 is perhaps one of the most important Lord's Days that we have in our Heidelberg Catechism. We have a lot of well-known Lord's Days. I think often we think of Lord's Day 1 as a well-known one. But I think we do well to put a a fold in this corner of our songbook page and really value and treasure what we could just confess in Lord's Day 23. It's easy to get lost in the the wording and the complexity of of a question and answer, such as question and answer 60. But question and answer 60 holds one of the central foundational teachings of Christianity. One of the central doctrines of the Christian faith. And in a sense, the central theme of what we confess in, in question and answer 60 is exactly what the whole Bible is dealing with. The whole question that the Bible seeks to answer, and the question is this, how do we become right before God? In the first two chapters, we see man living in a perfect relationship with God in the garden. And if we were to flip to the end of the book, we see man living with God in in the new heavens and new earth, again, in in perfect bliss. So we started off right with God, and, and, and we end in a right relationship with God. So how do we get right with God? Well, that's what the bulk of the Bible is going to be about. That's the question in its essence which the Bible is trying to answer. It's not, the Bible is not how to become a better person. But instead, the question the Bible seeks to answer is this. How can I, how can I as as an evil person be accepted by a holy God? 
And that question is the most basic and perhaps the most foundational question that we have. And this question, how do we become right with God, is not just a question that Christians need to answer. This question of how to become right with God is a question that every single person that's ever breathed on this planet needs to answer for themselves. Whether you're Muslim or Buddhist, whether you're Catholic, an atheist, religious, or whatever the case, every person will have to answer this question. And it's not a question that governments can fix. It's not a question that divides a political spectrum. It's, it's not a question which we can get a vaccine for. It's not a question that lockdowns will answer. It's not a question that United Nations can address. Climate change won't work to address this fundamental question. And yet, as important as this question is, it's a question which we often, is often neglected in the world around us. Many dismiss this question. You won't find this question addressed in the public schools and in universities and other institutions. You won't find governments wrestling with the biggest question, how do we become right with God? And in a sense, that question is the biggest and the most silent killer that we can face. And this is a very personal question. It comes to each of us. How do you, how do you as individual, how do you become right with God? And why is this question so important? Well, the reality is, is that the, at the end of our life, when we breathe our last, last, we will die. And what we need to remember as we consider what it is to, to, to pass away, there's two truths which is underpinning this Lord's Day. The first truth is this, that when we die, every single person in this world will face the divine creator, the divine judge of this world, and the question will be this, have you lived a perfect life or not? And so the second question that underpins this, this thing is, A, we're going to die and face the ultimate judge. And the other question underpinning this is, are you living in a right relationship then with this God? At that moment when breath departs your lungs and you stand before Almighty God, God will demand perfect obedience of every single person that's ever lived in this world. And will you pass that test? Well, thankfully, the catechism gives us an answer of this most important question. There is a solution to this problem which we're addressing here this afternoon. In a sense, that's the message of the whole Scripture. It's the good news of the Gospel that God saves sinners. And that's the question and answer which the Reformation was, was fundamentally dealing with. We are justified. We are counted right before God by grace alone. Through faith alone. And that indeed is amazing grace. And so that makes this question and answer of what we in question and answer 60 so important for us. And so if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then focusing on this question and answer this afternoon should give us a renewed sense of marvel at what God is doing. The grace that we receive as sinners. The truth is, as we confess, we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared to believe. And, and yet, by grace, we are more loved and accepted by God than we ever dared to hope. And, and that's the amazing gospel which we see in question and answer 60. But if you're here this afternoon and you're not living in a right relationship with God, if, if you're here this afternoon and you don't understand the truth claims of Christianity, if you're ignoring the truth claims or following another religion and 
this message this afternoon is the most important message perhaps that you could hear. Don't tune out and, and don't leave here. Today what we have offered in front of us in question and answer 60 is, is eternal life is offered before you. There is hope. There is hope for sinners. There's grace for wretched sinners. There is sight for the blind. And I pray as this message is brought to you this afternoon and stirs you up that you will indeed confess that simply to thy cross I cling, that naked I come to thee for dress, helpless I look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And so this afternoon we, look, we want to look at the amazing gift of grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound as we can look at this question and answer, I'd like to focus on three truths, namely the need for grace, the effect of grace, and then finally the response to grace. So if you have a Bible, you do well to open it up in front of yourself. We're going to go through a few passages together from the first six chapters. The book of Romans is one of these dense, these weighty books which sometimes is difficult to get into and to understand. There's so much teaching that's involved in this, in this book. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He hadn't been there before, and yet he sent him this letter to the new believers there. And as we look to the first book of the first chapters of Romans, we're going to see the truth that we confess in the Lord's Day 23. It's exactly echoed in these verses. So the book of Romans begins with some introductory comments. He's speaking to the church in Rome. And then in verse 16 and 17, as I said this morning, I think we get what it is, the theme of the book of Romans. Romans 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and for also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So if you were to ask the question, what's the book of Romans about? The book of Romans is about the gospel, the power of God which brings salvation to everybody. And then the rest of the book of Romans basically defending that point. How is it? How is it that we become right with God? And that's what the book of Romans is going to answer. How do we become right with God? And Paul's going to show the need for grace. And he begins by speaking about who God is. If we continue reading from Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because of what may be known about God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Paul begins by telling us some important things that we need to know about God. God, he says in verse 20, is the creator of the world. God made the world thousands of years ago. He made you and He made me. He made everything that we see around us. And because God is the creator, that means He makes the rules. And what does He expect from us? 
Well, the least he expects from us in verse 21 is that we glorify God and we're thankful to God. All humanity is accountable before God who made them. We're not autonomous beings. We're not self-reliant. We're not self-created beings. And God says, I expect you as my creatures to glorify me. And that's a truth which we don't have time to unpack this afternoon, but it's a truth that we believe to be true. When you look at another, an earlier Lord's Day, Lord's Day 3, question and answer 6, we, we get a sense of that. In Lord's Day 3, the question asks, did God then create man wicked and perverse? And the, que- and the question then says how God did create man. God created man good. God created man righteous and holy. God created man so that we might know his God, our creator, that we might love him, live with him, to the praise and glorify him. You see, the purpose that we are created is to know God, to love God, and to praise and glorify God. That's exactly what we see in the first few chapters. If we go to the Garden of Eden, we see man in, in a perfect communion with God, praising and glorifying Him. And if we were to turn back to question and answer, 20, uh, question and answer 60, Lord's Day 23, that's implied, isn't it, in the last section of the question there. When we lived in the Garden of Eden, the implication is that we had, we had to live without sin, that we had to live with obedience. That's what it says there. This is what God required of us. And the question then this afternoon is this. Do you, do, do, do I, do just readers of this letter, are they perfect as God created us to be? How do you stand before this God? Well, Paul continues in Romans chapter 1, verses 21. He says, we read it, well, let's read it again. Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful they became futile in their thoughts, their foolish hardened and foolish hearts were darkened. And then if we skip down to verse 29, he's going to describe what these foolish people look like in their darkened minds. He says they're filled with all unrighteousness, with, with sexual immorality, with wickedness and covetousness and maliceness. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud. Boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgments of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. You see, what Paul has just described in these chapters, these verses that we just read is, is what we call the, the irreligious people. The category that Paul is speaking about here is the non-religious people. People that ignore God, people that have dismissed the truth claims of God as their Savior. In Paul's times, he called these Gentiles. These were pagans. And today, if we were to translate into that in today's culture, that's all those around us who disobey God. All those who reject God, who deny God. The millions and millions of people here in Ontario, even in in Owen Sound, who are irreligious. Perhaps your neighbors, perhaps your co-workers, or politicians, or or people perhaps even in your own family. And what does Paul say about these irreligious people? Well, he says they became futile in their thoughts. Their, Their hearts were darkened. And in verse 29, he gives us a list. It's this horrible list of what it looks like. 
Their hearts and minds were filled with every kind of evil, greed and, and hatred, and, and the list goes on. And as we think about that list for a moment that Paul gives in these verses from 29 to 32, recognize for a moment that these are mostly heart issues. These, it's a heart problem that we have. The problem that we have is inside of us. Our hearts and our minds are evil. And so what's the punishment? What's the punishment for this irreligious group who deny God? Well, we read it in verse 32. The judgment of God awaits those who practice such things. They are deserving of death. Those who deny the truth claims of Christianity that live separate from God deserve physical and eternal death. And in Christianity, we call that hell. Not obeying God, not loving God, not serving God as we ought to with his death sentence for all of us. But then Paul moves from the irreligious, the, the pagans around us, and he makes an abrupt shift in his letter. We see that in verses 2, verse 1. In 2, verse 1, Paul shifts his focus from the, the irreligious, the Gentiles, the heathens as it were, and he looks squarely at the Jews in the eyes. And you need to realize the shock of what Paul's saying here. You know, you can imagine a situation where there's a, a teacher in front of a classroom and, and the teacher gives some instructions to the children. Here's what you shouldn't do. I want you to read your books carefully. I don't want you to, to whatever, dance on the desks. And there's the boys in one corner and the boys are doing exactly what the teacher said you shouldn't do. And perhaps in the other corner is a bunch of girls perhaps and they've got their books open but in front of their books they're reading something different perhaps. And the teacher comes in and the teacher looks at the boys on the desk and says, what are you doing? I told you not to do that. And of course, it was evidently that they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing. But then as word, the teacher turns to the other group of students and says, it looks like you're doing what you should be doing, but in fact, you're equally disobeying me. And that's it. in essence, that's what the Paul is saying. He's focusing on the religious leaders. He says, you, you also have a problem. We see that in 2 verse 1, you, therefore you are without excuse, O man, whoever you are, sorry, whoever you are, judge. For in whatever you judge one another, you condemn yourselves, for you who judge and practice the same things. He says, you are without excuse. You religious people, you are no better, he says. In fact, if we flick over to chapter 2 verses 9, he says there that the Jews and also the Greeks, they're all in trouble. Everyone who does evil, the Jews and the Greeks alike. Just imagine that. The religious leaders of the time. Paul turns his attention and says, You, you are also ignorant of God. The Jews, the morally good people, the leaders of the church. They were lost sinners and in need of God's grace under His curse. And this should make us really uncomfortable. How is it that on the one hand, the most irreligious people in the world, and on the other hand, the church leaders were equally deserving of God's punishment? The religious people, they looked so good, everything was together. How could they be scolded by Paul? It's because the Jews considered themselves to be better than the Gentiles. The Jews had somehow had figured that they ought to be earned God's favor because of what they had done. And Paul gives us a conclusion in chapter 3, verses 9. If 
you turn over to chapter 3, verses 9, we get the conclusion in this matter. What then, Paul says, are we, are we Jews any better than they? Not at all, he says. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that all are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. The most religious person, the most religious person, Jews and Gentiles alike, are all under God's condemnation, all under sin. And that means you and I are included in this all. That's exactly what we confess in Lord's Day 23, question and answer 60, the first part of the question there. Although my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am inclined to all evil, that's me. And that's you. We are sinners, never doing anything right. 100% sinners, deep down, our conscience will accuse us that we stand under God's curse and in need of grace. And when you and I draw our final breath, we stand before a holy God and we have to give it account. And it says in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3, and we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, which is all of us, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. When you and I draw a final breath and stand before God Almighty, every mouth will be stopped. Every mouth will be shut. The whole world stands condemned before a holy God. That's the dark and and, and the difficult background that we confess in this Lord's Day. We have no hope in and of ourselves. And for many today, this is an offensive reality. For, For many today, this is a shocking truth. Why, you ask? Because the truth of the Bible says that the pagans, the morally good people, the Bible says that Catholics and Muslims and Buddhists and and do your best type of people, all these are as good as hopeless. Many religions around the world say we just got to try harder and and, and do better or be more devout. And all these religions are, are sadly misguided. They think they're trying to earn God's favor and please Him. But in essence, it all comes down to nothing. Consider the hope that Hinduism offers. That somehow you work towards spiritual perfection. At the end, you you join the circle of karma. Do better, do better, and eventually you'll get somewhere. It's moralism. Just to be a good person somehow gets you favor. It's ignoring God and it's focusing on us being a good person. Consider Buddhism. It's their goal to purify your heart. Follow these religious principles. Meditate. Do self-discipline. So that eventually you can reach nirvana. And you know what that is? That's, That's moralism. That's just trying to be a good person. But ignoring God and the truth of and the saving work of Jesus Christ. Islam, it's just another form of of, of moralism. Follow these five religious duties. And at death, based on your faithfulness, how well you've done, that's where your hope of entering paradise. And even churches such as the Roman Catholic churches, they struggle in this area too. 
They acknowledge Christ as Savior for sure. But they also teach that we have to do penance, that we have to somehow earn our, our salvation, that we, good works are necessary to be saved. We say this with tears in our eyes when we say that this too is it's a form of moralism because we all stand condemned before God based on our own efforts. And so do you understand the need for grace this afternoon? We're more sinful and f- more flawed than we ever dared to believe. There's a huge divide between what God requires and who we are. And the question is then, who? Who, who, will, who will make us stand in that, in that gap and who will fill that void? Who will put us in a right relationship with God? Well, the good news of the gospel is we know who that is. It's the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible is all about. These 66 books, they show us who that person is. The message of the gospel is that God saves sinners through the person of Jesus Christ. The glorious news of Paul's message is the word but. And that gets us to the second point, the effect of grace. Look for a moment at chapter 3, verse 21 from the book of Romans, how Paul continues. He's just said that we we're all stand condemned before God. And then he starts with, but now. Do you see it? Verse 21, but now. Here in the book of Romans is a drastic turn in Paul's, in, Paul's, uh, in Paul's teaching. And you ought to love those words, but now. I was lost, but now. The implication is I'm not lost anymore. I was sick, but now. The implication is I'm not sick anymore. You were convicted perhaps, but, but now... No longer. I deserve eternal death, but now. Those three-letter word, but, that gives all the hope that we need in this gospel. But now, Paul says, there is hope. There is a way for humans to be made right with God, to be counted righteous before this holy God. Instead of unrighteousness, there's righteousness. Instead of guilty, there's innocent. Instead of condemnation, there's justification. That's what it says in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. There is a way that we can be righteous before God. And it continues, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So how are we made righteous before this God then? How does God justify sinners like like you and and like me? How How does God declare those who are sinners to be right with Him and heirs to eternal life? Well, We get that answer in, in verse 24. All are made right, all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are justified through the person of Jesus Christ. At the center of Christianity is a cross for good reason. For it was on that cross that Jesus Christ made us right with God. His blood was our freedom. His death was our life. That's the great exchange. All our sins are counted to Christ 
And his perfect obedience is counted to us. What a, what a marvelous demonstration of God's love. We read that in Romans 5 verse 8. Paul breaks out into praise. But God, who demonstrates his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to what Paul says in another one of his letters, in, in the letter to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is what, what Paul says that he was. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, he says, our Lord, who has enabled me, because he has counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. And listen to what Paul says about himself. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. Because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He says, And the grace, and the grace of our Lord Jesus was abund- exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Did you hear for a moment what Paul said about himself? Paul says, I was lost, but he found me. I was a sinner. And he rescued me. I was blinded and he gave me sight. That's grace. That's just amazing grace. And that's exactly what we confess in the, in the middle part of question and answer 60, Lord's Day 23. And yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, out of mere grace, he imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus Christ. This grace is given to us without a cost. It costs us nothing. And yet it costs God everything. We receive life through the death of another. To paraphrase an English Puritan, he says, God wanted to hear Jesus Christ groan so that we might not have to groan. He wanted to see Jesus Christ bleed so that we would not have to bleed under judgment. God refused to save his son from death that we might be spared from death. He was willing, he was willing that his perfect son be made a man and die so that sinful people like you and me might receive life. That, my dear friends, is astounding grace. Consider the two realities that we confess in Lord's Day 23. On the one hand, I'm more sinful, I'm more flawed than I ever dared to believe. I am 100% sinner. And yet, on the other hand, I am more accepted, I am more loved than I ever dared to hope. 100% grace. That's the gospel message in three words that God saves sinners. The question then, what are we saved for? What's the purpose of this salvation? What does it look like that we live in a right relationship with God? Well, we saw that in question and answer 59, the first question and answer. What does it help that you believe all this? It says, in Christ I am righteous before God and an heir to everlasting life. We are loved by God as if we had never sinned and, and wonders of wonders we are given eternal life. Life forever, free from sin, free from suffering, pure bliss in the presence of Jesus Christ our Savior. What, what a glorious future awaits, awaits who? Who is this salvation? Who is this glorious future for? Who can receive this amazing gift of grace? 
Is there some quality in the person that receives this grace? Well, the truth is, if, if, if God justifies sinners, then He can justify you. If you're a sinner, and if you don't trust in Jesus Christ, your Savior, if you're living without God this afternoon, this grace is available to you as well. That's the amazing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ by faith alone. And that leads us to the third and the final point that we want to close with, is this response to, to grace. As I said, Lord's Day, uh, question and answer 60, Lord's Day 23, is a deeply personal question. How are you? How are you individuals sitting in the pew this afternoon? How are you righteous? How do you get this free gift of God? Well, we read that a little bit from Romans. Let's turn together again from Romans chapter 3, verses 22. Romans 3, verses 22. We get the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ who, on all who believe. This gift is available to all who believe, all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And in fact, if we turn back to Romans chapter 1 that we started with, which is the theme of Romans 1, the theme of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we get the answer there, don't we? Because for Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So what should be your response to the grace of God, that God saves sinners? What should be your response? We need to believe. We need to believe then that's exactly what we see in the closing words of question and answer 60. If only I accept this, with a, this gift with a believing heart. If only I accept this gift, this free gift of grace with a believing heart. So we need to believe. Believe that the promises of God here in God's word are true and are true for you. So the question that needs to be asked this afternoon. Do you believe this message of grace? Have you sought your refuge in the rock of ages? Have you totally surrendered yourself of all pride, and instead you simply cling to the bloody cross. Are you, do you believe that God has promised good to you? Is it your greatest treasure, your confession that Jesus Christ sought you in a stranger, wandering from the fold of God? He, to rescue you from danger, bought you with His precious blood. Is that your confession this afternoon? Dear friends, if if Jesus Christ is not your Savior, if you don't believe this or are struggling to understand the truths of what we confess here, that hear this amazing gospel of grace this afternoon, that God saves sinners, God can abundantly pardon your sins. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. There is forgiveness for the guilty people. God comes to you this afternoon as you are broken and in need of grace. And so turn. Turn to Him who is so great in mercy. Do not rise from your seat this afternoon until you've understood this truth. It's the most wonderful message ever. And for those of us who do believe, for those of us who do by faith accept Christ as our only hope, then cherish this Lord's Day. 
Cherish this Lord's Day that shows the amazing grace of God. You are more sinful, you are more flawed than you ever dared to believe. At the same time, we are more accepted, that we are more loved than we ever dared to hope. As one person once said beautifully, you saved me from the worst thing that could ever happen. And we've been saved for the best thing that could ever happen, eternal life. By grace you were redeemed. By grace you were set free. And now you can freely walk into the arms of Christ your Lord. Let me close with these words from Romans chapter 11, the doxology that Paul gives in, in Romans chapter 11, verses 33. And Paul breaks out into this doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of God or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him and, it sh and shall it be repaid to Him? For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's sing in response to God.